Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dave Clay. In my younger days, I used to make a lot of mistakes. I still make a lot of mistakes. But I would claim them more readily, probably, possibly. In my younger days than I am today, I'd like to think I'm a little bit wiser today than I was back then. But I used to think in very limited sort of terms. And maybe not only they were limited in the sense of maybe not taking all the data in, but at the same time, they were often, often kind of optimistic or naive in the general reference. Uh, oh, it'll work out. I just need to do this, this, and this. And, and maybe really the limited two is that I, I don't know that I thought it through in the manner and way that I needed to. And certainly experience being the good teacher that it is. Uh, there is plenty of occasions in my life, maybe not exactly the same situation, but plenty of occasions in my life where I have not thought things through and learned the hard way. I, I thought this was going to work, but it really isn't. Insights. Psychology Today, May and June of 2023. The State of Youth Mental Health by Noam Spencer, Ph.D. New data show a sharp decline in teens' mental health in the U.S. and around the globe. What's behind this troubling trend? It's no secret that teens are struggling, but a new CDC report highlighted just how steep and jarring their decline has been, especially among teenage girls. Nearly 60% of teen girls in the U.S. reported feeling persistently sad and hopelessness in 2021, almost double the numbers reported by teen boys and the highest level of distress reported since 2011. The report also found one in three teen girls had seriously considered suicide. One in five experienced sexual violence in the previous year. 14% reported being forced to have sex. 22% of LGBTQ plus youth had attempted suicide in the previous year. Black students were less likely to report poor mental health than other racial groups, yet were insignificantly, excuse me, yet were significantly more likely to have attempted suicide. American teens aren't the only ones struggling. A global survey of 400,000 respondents from 64 countries conducted by Sapien Labs found 46% of youths ages 18 to 24 reported being emotionally distressed. Just 22% of youth reported being close to their family. 12% of 18 to 24-year-olds reported having no close friends compared with 6% of those over 75. Individuals of all ages without close friends or family were 10 times more likely to have mental health problems compared with those in strong relationships. The kids are not all right. 
Young people are suffering across the board and girls are suffering the most. Why? Global catastrophes like COVID-19 and climate change are obvious obvious culprits. Nearly 40% of U.S. students reported poor mental health during the pandemic and over half of young people think that or think humanity is doomed. The rise in teens' depression correlates with the rise of social media, which arguably fosters envy, anxiety, and stress by design, and girls appear more vulnerable than boys to its negative emotional effects. Parenting, too, may factor in. Today's parents tend to be over-involved in their children's lives, a pattern that is likely to make more kids or make kids more anxious rather than more secure. All this adds up to the possibility that youths are more emotionally fragile than prior generations. This is not to be confused with weak character, rather a sense of hopelessness which many teens arguably feel is closely tied to lower resilience. Social connectedness, the kind undermined by social media and widespread cultural upheaval, is a strong predictor of resilience. Loneliness undermines it. And children tend to experience excessive parental or parental worry, not as love, but as doubt, which turns in a self-fulfilling prophecy into self-doubt among teens. Mental resilience is less a function of content and more a function of process. In other words, it's more about how you face problems than about what problems you face. While the global challenges they experience are no doubt daunting, young people's excessive vulnerability may be as much a failure of our culture as the fault of global circumstances. Again, Psychology Today, May, June of 2023. Insights, the state of youth mental health. New data show a sharp decline in teens' mental health in the U.S. and around the globe. What's behind this troubling trend? By Noam Spencer, Ph.D. Would it not seem the best that all of us could be born with what I'm going to call wisdom. And as much wisdom seems to be something that has to do with knowledge, and they're in facts, they're in also facts, wisdom, however, is more about how than what. Wisdom is more about experience than it is about a single occurrence. Wisdom then is more about over time, regardless the problem, the situation, the circumstance, one learning how to survive, to continue, to not quit, to not give up, to not deem themselves a failure, to not fall into hopelessness, feelings of helplessness, which I think are both indicators of depression, despair, but also they are functional elements of arrival, in this sense, of despair and depression. Because when you start to feel hopeless and helpless, you give up. And when you give up, you become fatalistic. 
And fatalism is, albeit a little different than pessimism or negativism, but fatalism really is that it's not going to get better. And then why try? Why aspire? Why even put yourself in a situation if you know you're going to fail or you know you're not going to accomplish the end? And how do you know what the end is? Somewhere out there, somebody has arrived. You just don't know how to get there. Now, I don't know that that has anything to do with how I began (laughs) the podcast today. When I was younger, I went through a lot of growing pains. I don't know that I was overly, again, hopeful or optimistic I do believe my expectations were, rightly so, of success. I also believe that I was brought up in a nurturing and encouraging environment, at least enough so, that I thought I could do it. I looked around me and saw other people succeeding, and with that then believed, well, (laughs) if they could do it, I can do it. And I probably had... Friends, family along the way, probable in the sense that I look back, that was really contributory to me continuing and not giving up, not quitting. (laughs) I don't know that that was, again, as with wisdom, born into me. It seems like it's a virtue and character, and though the article makes a very, very clear statement, very um, notable statement, this is not to be confused, very powerful, this is not to be confused with weak character. I don't know that I would necessarily agree with the intention, especially since I don't know Gnome's intention in saying it that way. But I will say this, I don't know that I agree totally that you're born with wisdom or character or virtue. Or if you are, it's more cultural or social or at least has a strong, predominant cultural or social dimension to it. When I can't be strong, when I've never been there before, when it's my earliest test when I was younger, And I was still learning what I could do. Possibly it's about validation. I knew I could do it. I just had very few successes under my belt. And the more that you have, it's that winning attitude. It's that knowing how to be a winner. It's that confidence that seems to be character, virtue, Seems to be wisdom that really does seem like it gets you through. Maybe you have to borrow from others. Maybe if the article, as the article captures it, maybe if you're not connected or tethered in the right sort of way, if you don't have the proper social supports, if you have a worldwide epidemic like COVID that then tells everybody to stay inside and to really isolate yourself for the sake of survival, uh, uh, being alive, living, uh, communicable disease that cuts down on on people dying, uh, which makes sense. 
But I don't know that in that same sort of way it makes sense when it comes to then the social connections. And though family constellations can be strong, though parents can have themselves success, though parents may still be somewhat aspirational and believing, and even if or as they would communicate that to their children, it does seem like even parents can fall into that abyss, that conundrum of hopelessness and helplessness, because we too, no matter how old you are, as long as you're not a child any longer, or maybe in a position where you are now responsible to encourage in the way hopefully you were encouraged, you still need the help of others. You need positive messaging. You need something of some sort of, you can get through this encouragement. You can overcome this encouragement. We can work together encouragement. But that really doesn't translate well if everything around you is either we've got to be scared and afraid, we have to stay in the house, we can't go out of the house, we can't go to work, we can't go to church, we can't go to any of the other social functions, can't go to school, colleges, universities, can't go to primary and secondary schools, can't go to grocery stores. (laughs) You just can't go anywhere. And with that, you're left truly in your own echo chamber. Now, once again... Hopefully, with experience, the older ones who are no longer children are in a position where they've found virtue and character. They've had some experiences of success in their life. And with that, they can begin to recall or remember (laughs) before all of that happened. Uh, Before on social media, all that you were receiving was the negative news cycles, the negative messaging, uh, the criticisms, the condemnations, the anger that, I suppose all of that, out of fight or flight. Anger that that seems to stir up. Anxiety, the, the flight part, the fear part, the emotional thinking, the threat that this all represents, imminently so, and imminently so attached to the possibility of death. I mean, all of that would not only just be hyperbole, but would then make that uh, hypervigilant, <laughs> rightly so. We should be hypervigilant and Especially if you don't know where it's coming from, you can't see it. The enemy's not so easily identified. Uh, there's a certain element of paranoia that goes with hypervigilance, and that seems that that would foster that. But if you've come through some bad circumstances, and even as adults, you've never really arrived at that point, that there's uh, within the family dynamics, not only socially, but genetically, even the physiology. There's psychological disease or disorder, there's depression, there's mental illness, mental health concerns. When there is then with developmental sort of aspects, certain experiences that you just don't get. Socialization is huge when it comes to psychosocial development, when it comes to maturation. We are social creatures. We do do things in social context. There is always a social order attached to it. It's in us to be social. It's in us to be relational. It's in us to be connected. 
And if you're alienating, or if not with intention to alienate, there are aspects of your culture or society that seems to sequester and alienate, whether it's natural phenomenon or contrived, man-made, as in we've created it, uh, if you then, in an ecological sort of way, start to point out where the whole world is dying ecosystem-wise and that we're not going to survive this, and then you start putting approximations on that. We're only going to make it another 10 years if we don't change it, and I understand the messaging in that is important. I, I'm not even disagreeing with the messaging. I'm just saying when you do that, though, and then even as much, you deny people any sort of opportunity to connect to connect not only with the negative, or if maybe all you're having happen is the negative through social media being piped into your home, all your video games, the gaming is about shooting up and killing people, uh, what would we expect? Most of the movies are about killing and shooting and destroying and apocalyptic sort of storylines, what should we expect? There's going to be then an impossibility, it seems, of escape. There's no way out of this. And that ability to connect to others and the ability to find some positive in it then becomes oh so important. And maybe if we're going to talk about social engineering or we're going to talk about in some sort of way constructing at least somewhat of a counter to the realism that all of this might represent or the potential factor truth, if you're looking at a problem though and you're already expecting yourself to fail and you've already taken on a failure identity and you don't get this chance as more normal development would have it to explore and to test out things, and then all of a sudden you're dumped into adulthood with all these adult concepts and the adult responsibilities that go along with it, and you're not prepared. (laughs) You have had no experience, really. Uh, Helicopter parents, even. The worrisome attitudes the article sort of alludes to or directly speaks to when it comes to it could be all out of love, but all it's communicated is, uh, I think it's going to not work. I don't think you're going to succeed. I think you're going to mess this up. How do you acquire, if virtue and character, how do you acquire that? How do you take on a positive sort of frame of reference? Or if it's neutral, how do you at least keep it neutral? Even if it's just a matter of luck, you have to keep it neutral. If you fall into the trap of not a winning attitude, the trap would be a negative one. I suppose you could be too narcissistic, and maybe we do do that some. Bounce to the other side. That's where the balance between the realistic and the optimistic or the hopeful come in. But if you don't get some wins under your belt and you don't experience that early enough in life, and that's not part of the formation of who you are as an individual, your identity, and your earliest experiences socially with others so that you can practice this a bit before you get into the more adult, if I can call it that again, we're speaking of children, youth. So I I think it's appropriate 
sort of context. But six-year-olds, probably this whole notion of sexualizing our culture, and I do believe the article does a fair job, and I do too. I don't, I don't want to demonize that. I'm just saying six and seven, that's too early to be dealing with the consequences because it's sort of like, again, as I began the podcast, I could look back on my youth and I could say, I can't believe I was that stupid. You wouldn't say that. I'm not saying that that's you. I'm saying it's me. I could say that, but I'm so glad that I didn't quit and that I learned to learn from my mistakes and to mature. But I have to be old enough. I have to at least have all the apparatus in place. Six-year-olds don't even have the same level of cognitive abilities developmentally, higher cortical functions online, and if they should be coming online, they're not coordinated, they're not calibrated yet, they're still emotional creatures, they're still primarily reacting out of emotional dimensions. They may be able to conceptualize things in abstract terms, but there's really that lack of ability to approximate an application to reality to use the power that is implicit in just that kind of processing cognitively to use abstract thought properly all those what we know psychologically from my training cognitive developmental operations that come online sequentially and has an age sort of related or dependent component Not to mention, once more, the more psychosocial developmental aspects, the individual and then the context of the individual to others who may be at the same place, may be more advantaged, may be more disadvantaged by life circumstances, may be more mature, less mature, maybe had more of an advantage by having parents that were more mature or with that having wisdom or with that then acquisition of virtue and character and that turned toward positivity. They don't know how to counter the negatives. It's a lot to ask a six-year-old to make that decision. It's a lot to tell a six-year-old the world's going to end in 10 years if we don't do something. And all they hear is that it's over. Why do I do anything? Or their fight or flight kicks in, their anxiety kicks in. In and of itself, that could be traumatizing. I just think even if it's somewhat benevolent, the sexual acts, even if it's between consensual age, same age, individuals, six years old, you don't understand the implications of that. There's just a lot that goes into that aspect of personal space, accountability, responsibility. Then you add to that the decision about actually changing your anatomical features while you're still trying to figure out your gender orientation or as you're still in those formative years of identity, it's no wonder. And the article began, I think, singling, singular, singling, that's the right word, singularly so, addressing more the teenage girl experience. But I'll go back. One in three teen girls had seriously considered suicide But it also says one in five experienced sexual violence in the previous year. 14% reported being forced to have sex. 22% of the LGBTQ plus youth had attempted suicide in the previous year. 
all of that suggests either gender identity, identity, which is, I agree, a psychological construct, but you need some help in forming that construct. You don't need to be told what you are, but you need to understand the implications long term. And who's going to know those better? I would believe individuals with more experience under their belt. And hopefully those who have learned from others, those who then, in that wisdom sort of way, not only can you share knowledge, data, but you can share how to determine and apply or how to determine how to apply that data to your unique life, who you are. And then whatever you have chosen to be, but how many times might you change your mind or your opinion about things as you're exploring them? As you're trying on this and you're trying on that. What are you going to be when you grow up? That's what we used to call it as an adult. Well, I want to be... always <laughs> amazing. I want to be an astrophysicist, astrophysicist, or a beautician. To me, those seem to be completely different worlds. But that's how people sometimes think. Do you want to be this person, that person? Oh, this person looks kind of neat. I want to find out all about that. I need to go out and experience that, find out, determine. But you really don't know, and even as an adult, how many of us could say that we've lived all of life's circumstances or seen it from all the different perspectives? Isn't that the beauty of life, that you continue to grow and mature? But you learn how to do that properly without making radical, significant decisions. That's part of virtue and character. If, again, there is anything universal that I could offer that I think everybody should agree upon and possibly would agree upon as being something of a virtue and character statement, we all should acquire its science. It's evidence-based. It's good research modeled. It's empirically sound. It's highest order ordered sort of rational reasoned thinking it's higher cortical function but that's my point when you're a kid you're not there it has to be applied not once (laughs) several times until you finally learn it that's what school used to be about. It wasn't telling people what they should be or it wasn't saying, well, look, you can be any of these things. You just have to pick. And then overwhelming them with the choices. It was, here's how you figure out what's, what, who you are, what you are based on what your family has taught you so that you can then begin to survey the world and figure out whether you want to stay that way or not, but use science, use empiricism. Not only the facts, but how to determine truth. That's what seems to be, in my opinion, missing. We don't have the virtue and the character any longer. We, we don't believe in science. We say we believe in science, and I'm not talking about science deniers. Because those obviously, flat earthers, as an example, those obviously are the wrong sorts of aspects, character, virtue that we're seeking, wrong type of virtue and character we're seeking. But I'm talking about people who will pay homage to science, 
people who will purportedly be teaching science, but really they're just offering opinion. And they're not presenting all the data within the filter of that discovery, within the filter of garnering all the data that is possible, the facts. But knowing you're not going to gather every last bit of data, trying to get as many perspectives as possible to avoid the risk of subjectivity, which then corrupts your ability to really say it's objective or the objectivity or the objective lens that science offers, Teach people how to do that, then give them the data, and help them to come up with a thesis or hypothesis. But the thesis and hypothesis doesn't mean that that's the truth. It just means you're testing it to see if you can find enough to support that. And then you still do that within the context socially of others. You go to court, it's two witnesses. It's not one. Not only is there pretend... uh, Not only is there a lot of potential for lying, cheating, and stealing when there's only one, but no one's perspective because of subjectivity, because we are phenomenological creatures, and we are individuals, because we come from, first and foremost, some sort of a unique sense of who we are before we test who we are in context, not only socially, but in more environmental, transactional sort of ways with inanimate material, other material dimensions besides relational, human, relational sort of social scope. We still have to test it. That is what we're missing, my opinion. But that's what psychology leads with. And if it doesn't, then I don't know that it's a science. And I'm not pointing fingers at any particular theory. I don't want to do that. I don't want to point out any particular discipline. I don't want to say it's psychologists. I don't want to say it's psychiatrists. I don't want to say it's psychological counselors. I don't want to say it's social workers that are either right or altogether wrong. What I'm saying is that is virtue and character that has application when it comes to helping other individuals work through all these mind health, which I prefer to call it nowadays rather than mental health. There's such the stigma now with mental. Mind health issues. If I'm not that way, if the person you're speaking to isn't that way, don't talk to them. They're offering you opinion. Or should you decide, even though you've come to realize they have opinions, that their their opinions are still valid or worthy for you or worthwhile for you to hear, of some worth to you, then continue. But always be somewhat skeptical. But don't be hopeless and helpless. Don't be fatalistic. Don't buy into the rhetoric that it's not going to get better. Don't blame everybody else for the problems. Own your portion in it and hopefully encourage others to see it in this manner, through this lens. They can own their portion and then you can work together on resolving life difficulties. And I'm not saying that will cure all mental illness or mind health Difficulties. There'll be some that are genetic. There'll be some that otherwise, in a genetic sort of way, have a fatalistic sort of outcome. You're really not going to change it. It's a disease. It's, there's a progressive dimension. We have to accept it. 
because you can't change it. That's fact. It's truth, at least up to this point. Now, maybe there'll come a new procedure, a new medication. There's a bit of hope even in that, that one day we'll be able to remediate and remedy even what we think today would be disease with finality, with terminal, terminality, that's the word, Uh, a fatalistic sort of end in mind, a progressive, as in worsening, sort of chronic mental illness sort of uh, context. But it's not there yet. But even then, I'm going to be cautious, and I'm still going to be optimistic, and I'm still going to be encouraging to do the best we can with what we've got, and I'm still going to apply this wisdom, and I'm still going to do that in some sort of hopeful manner, and I'm going to still do that with the intention of not deceiving or not misrepresenting the truth, but trying to at least contribute to the truth with this possibility. You can be fatalistic. You can be hopeless and helpless. You can put on such a negative lens, which is despair and depression. But there's a social dimension to that even. I can further hurt you and harm you if I'm not able to at least realistically, legitimately, credibly say, but we don't know everything yet. It's still a thesis. And we can still hope. We can still keep working toward a solution. But why would we expect someone who really has no experience with that, as with children and youth, to have that innately in them? Yes, they're optimistic and hopeful, but a lot of that's just based on, again, innocence, naivete. But it doesn't take long before you begin to realize you can't do everything. It doesn't take long before before you realize you can't be a beautician, but you may be an astrophysicist. Astrophysicist, same thing. You might be an astrophysicist and can't, I mean, can't do, I guess you can be a beautician, but you can't be an astrophysicist. It could go that way too. But that's something you learn. Maybe you do want to be gay. Maybe you want to be transsexual. Maybe you want to be bisexual. Maybe you want to be a a girl when anatomically you're a boy and you can go through those procedures. But do that out of wisdom. Do that out of some sort of maturity or character that that represents so that you make the best choice. And you still may discover that's not really what you want or you thought it would fix this or correct that. And maybe you could undo it. I don't know. Or maybe you can change something else or do something else in that way. I'm just trying to say, don't do it before you really understand what objectivity is. Or don't do it when you're so young you can't possibly make that decision objectively within that scientific, that model of science sound research model, don't do it. And if somebody's willing to do that because you're telling them that and and they're not practicing science in that way, don't do it. They should at least ask you the pertinent questions. Have you thought all this out? And realizing, too, that some adults, again, science deniers, they're not mature enough to see it that way. They're still thinking in these very primitive. They have developmental delays. They have all the machinery there, hopefully. Some may not. Some may be physiologically challenged, congenitally challenged. They just don't have the apparatus, the brain function, the biochemistry. is Somehow they can't make those decisions. Not correct. 
we're not ideal to making the best decisions, and we try to assist. But if it's a developmental delay, if it's a psychological delay, then certainly I should do something to make sure we at least represent the opportunity for a better way of looking at it or the empirical model should be applied in any of the work that I do so that you still may say, no, I'm going to do it anyhow. It's not my ultimate decision, but I've been responsible to help you. I'm trying not to harm you. We need to really, with integrity, not only in the psychological counseling dimension, the mind health dimension, but all aspects of our life, we need to apply science. And if we're not, then we've created these problems ourselves and we're not equipping our youth, which they're not going to then, when they get older, they're going to be developmentally delayed because they did not get the milestones accomplished that they needed to. And so they're going to be 50-year-olds acting like they're 14. And out of that, there is a lot of trauma. As I read those statistics a second time about the sexual traumas, it's true. Our society is so sexualized, and we've lost perspective on that. And it's, we're not taking into consideration all the facts. And there are sounder theories out there, but we're just operating off of opinion many times. And we just need to be careful about that. Because it is generational. And then it's not only as with disease, an individual having a disorder or disease that's progressive. Our culture, our society is progressively getting worse and worse. We're moving further and further away from science. We're moving further and further away from sound empiricism. We're not teaching it in schools. And if we are, we're not emphasizing it. We're too busy chasing down opinions. Which is perfectly all right for any adult and every adult to have. And we should coexist. And your opinion is as important as mine or mine as yours. But we need to equip everyone to see it for what it is. And then we can talk about the truth that that represents. But if we don't do that, then we're trying to hijack it. We're trying to give lip service to science. And then in that same sort of a way, we've got an ax to grind or got an opinion And we're going to tell people, or even if the opinion is, well, nobody needs to tell anybody anything, then you're really contributing to ignorance. (laughs) You're going backwards. We're going to the dark ages. We're going back to the earliest human form and society. And you might say, oh, that's beautiful. It's innocent. Well, too bad. We're not there. We're not going to reverse that. But we can take the situation we're in and at least try to restore some element of innocence to it. And I think, again, science is the only answer universally that we can agree upon. But let the truth be truth. (laughs) But it's got to be constructed of fact and it can't be subjective. It's got to be valid and reliable and we need to accept there's going to be error the further away we move from that sound Again, research model, hypothetical deductive model of reasoning that says you've got to test for measure validity and reliability in it. <laughs> it's opinion. It's not that opinion isn't good and it may be right, but you still got to test it. Test your thesis. Test the hypothesis. And then whatever feedback you get, allow that to lead you 
to the next truth, or, or if truth is relative, then to take you to the next application, as within relative context, to your life. And not only yours, but it's got to be your neighbor's. You know, who's your neighbor? I try to do that. I think our industry tries to do that. I think that that's what ethics is all about. And in that sort of way, it's virtue and character. In that sort of way, it's solidly aligned with science and empiricism, highest order empiricism. And should you come in and talk to someone such as myself, that's what hopefully we're going to do. I know that's what I'm going to do. And in that, hopefully we'll encourage you both, not only in solving problems, coming to conclusions or making decisions about those things that you see as issues that you're addressing in your life, but the best way to go about getting the answer and how to continue then to test it, to adapt, to get better. And hopefully it'll start to reflect itself in our society. We'll do a better job of teaching other people, how to do that, we'll be able to do better in staying out of arguments and conflicts when there's really nothing much to support them except conviction. And there's a lot to be said for emotion and passion. But if it's not connected to reality in some ways, uh, that's why people start wars. That's why, how people justify wars. That's how people justify their right and somebody else's wrong. We just need to be calibrated toward that. But I think... My industry, the psychological counseling industry, that's what we're about. And uh, we are trained in that first and foremost. We acquire theory after the fact. But even in theory, we're called to the highest standard of, well, then prove it. Read the journals. Read the studies. Find out about the research that supports it or doesn't. And if it isn't supported, don't do it. It's unethical. Hopefully the podcasts promote that too. That's the intention. And if you find them to be beneficial, then of course, I'd like to invite you back to the next podcast of Word with Dave Clay. And you can contact me if you need to, if you want to reach out. I'm, I'm very open to communicating directly. Just most of the podcast listeners don't choose that as an option. And that's okay too. But you can find all my contact information uh, on the platform that supports the podcast that you're listening to now and disseminates it, distributes it. And then with that, if you would want help, Psychology Today has a great directory. I think it's great in the sense that it has a directory. And then it's also credible in that those individuals are licensed. They're vetted. And to the extent or degree that that's a credibility uh, uh, something that Psychology Today aspires to, I, I think that you can go there and at least survey what's available. And anymore these days, it's not bound ge to geography. It doesn't have to be where you live, although it may ask you for a zip code, but you could put any zip code in there and possibly do telehealth with somebody who's on the other side of the world. And so it's just a great instrument or tool to connect you with the help that you need. But, again, you can always come back and uh, enjoy, I'm hoping, the next version or edition of Word with Dave Clay. And until we get a chance then to meet in that sort of manner or way, I want to wish you the best in mind health. And, again, I want to thank you for joining us.